Getting emails from husbands telling me about the great work that their wives are doing is one of my favorite things. William wrote to say, quote, I often hear your promotions on the radio asking for exceptional women doing exceptional things. My wife of 33 years is one of these women. I never take for granted the work she has done. Our family is experiencing miracles, and I am so proud of her. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Well, William sure did get my attention with his email, and it turns out he and his wife are the parents of a child named Jake, now 27, who was diagnosed prenatally with a heart syndrome that meant he had only developed half a heart. Doctors suggested a late-term abortion, but that was not an option for them. Instead, they picked option number two, a series of experimental surgeries which, up until then, had shown very little success. That was 1994. And today, their baby boy is 27 years old, making him one of the oldest living patients with this heart defect in the world. And his mom has made it her life's mission to assist and educate heart families and to forward research that maps genomes that cause congenital heart defects. She's the program director of Project Singular at Additional Ventures. Her name is Diane Pickles. This is her story. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go back to the moment that you heard this news about your unborn child. We were about 20 weeks pregnant with our second child, and we had had a routine ultrasound where they said, you know, we can't see all four chambers of the heart, but baby's really active, probably nothing. So we'll do a follow-up ultrasound in about a week. And at that ultrasound, it was clear they knew they had a big problem. They just kind of kept calling people into the room. I did hear the word hypoplastic, but it didn't mean anything to me at the time. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore and said, please tell us what's going on. And they said, there's definitely a problem with your baby's heart. Try not to worry. So many of these problems are easily fixed. We'll send you to Boston. And I said, when do we go? And they said, right now. And at that oh. moment, <laughs> it was very clear. So we went into Boston and the doctor who scanned me said he has hypoplastic left heart syndrome. His odds of survival are very low. Odds of having any quality of life are extremely low. This will financially ruin you, and it will be devastating to your older child. And said, you have one week left to go to Wichita, Kansas, to legally terminate. And do you have any questions? And I said, <laughs> I, I, you know what? They brought some Kleenexes into <laughs> yeah, the room. Right? I'm the one who needs the Kleenexes yeah. in this part of the story for sure. Yeah. So I said, I only have one question. Is it a boy or a girl? And she scanned again and said, it's a boy. And brought in a cardiologist from Boston Children's Hospital who spent the rest of the day with us really outlining what the surgical course would look like. And so we knew we were going to continue with the pregnancy. It was really a terrible remainder of the pregnancy. But we were fortunate in that his diagnosis, which was fairly unusual back then, enabled us to deliver in Boston where they were ready for him. And... He had his first surgery at three days old, his second surgery at six months, and his third surgery at the age of two. You mentioned how the rest of the pregnancy was so hard for you. Explain what that meant. I, I'm just guessing you were every moment of every day on pins and needles. Yeah, it was just tremendous grief. You know, you're grieving on multiple levels, right? You're grieving 
what you thought was a healthy baby and now is not going to be. You're grieving the life that you had, which is forever changed. And you're grieving for the pain that this child is going to go through. I mean, your best case scenario is that he's going to suffer and struggle and survive. That's not a great case scenario, right? But you hope, and you hope every day. And I had a, an almost three-year-old who got me out of bed every morning, and I was really grateful for that because I don't know that I would have gotten be- out of bed every morning. But, yeah, it was really filled with worry, anxiety, and an awful lot of grieving. You had that three-year-old at home during all of this as well. Your older son, Matthew. Is there any history of heart defects in your family? None that we knew of. You know, there may have been my husband's grandmother had lost some babies, so maybe, but nothing that had ever been defined. And sometimes that's the way it happens. And when Jake was diagnosed, the belief was really that it was pretty random. And now the researchers really believe it is likely genetic in many, many cases and probably epigenetic, probably multiple genes and probably a combination of genes and environment. I want to go back to the doctors saying to you, the first option is an abortion. And the second option is to bring this child to term and deal with all of these surgeries and perhaps financial ruin and all the things that could affect your older son losing a baby boy, right? Why did you choose life for your child? We never considered abortion, and yet I can understand why families would consider that option. I would say there was a period of time where we considered comfort care, where he would be born and we wouldn't intervene. But I knew that as soon as he was born and I looked at him that there was no way that was going to happen. And we were going to give him a chance and we would fight for him and with him as long as he was willing to fight. And that was sort of where we landed on it. Do you believe in mother's intuition? Yes. Because I was watching your face as you answered that question, and I think somehow very deep down inside, you were already connected to this child. Yes, there was so many pieces of intuition along the way. It's hard to believe, but back then, routine ultrasounds were not being covered by insurance companies. But I remember asking my doctor, are you going to do a routine ultrasound? She said, they're not covering them. Why? And I said, I just would want to be prepared if there was a problem. And so when I think back on that, Had I not asked, they wouldn't have done one. We wouldn't have known. We wouldn't have delivered in Boston. He probably wouldn't have survived. I am thinking that on the day that you went into labor, and I want to hear about that, that room must have been filled with so many specialists. (laughs) My goodness, how did they even make room for you? (laughs) Well, when I look back on it, they all just kept coming in and introducing themselves. And I was like, I don't really care who you are. Can you go stand over there? Like... Whatever. But there were probably about 11 people, I think, we counted in the room, including a priest. We had asked to have him baptized right away. So the priest came in to baptize him. There was a cardiac ICU team from Boston Children's. There was a NICU team from the Brigham, where I delivered. There were a lot of people in the room. His labor and delivery were actually incredibly easy, as opposed to my first one. And I just remember we were expecting we wouldn't be able to hold him at all. And they gave him to me, and I was able to hold him for a couple minutes. And I just remember just holding him and looking in his eyes and crying, but just looking and seeing really the face of my husband and my older son. It was the same face and really connecting with him for a few minutes before they whisked him away to do what they needed to do for him. I'm guessing that this was an emotional moment for your husband as well. Yes, absolutely. We had decided in advance that he would follow with Jake to the ICU, and so he did. 
And he never told me until quite a while later that there's a bridge that you probably know that connects the Brigham and Children's. And so they were wheeling Jake across the bridge. And at one point, someone said, he's not breathing. And they started to run. And Bill started running after them. And they said, oh, no, no, it's okay. It's just the machine. But in that moment, he thought, you know, we had lost him. And he never told me that until, I don't know, years later. When you give birth to a child with this heart defect, are you always filled with fear that he will die? Absolutely. You can't sit in that fear or you would literally lose your mind. But there are no cures for this defect. We have palliative solutions so we can do these surgeries and get them through. And many, many of these kids now do really well through adolescence and then start to have other issues in adulthood. But it is a life-threatening disease. The only prognosis is that heart failure will happen at a certain point. We don't know when. So yes, you live with fear every day, and yet you have to live, and you have to hope. And so we do that. And you have to have faith. And it's obvious to me that yours has always been very important to you. Yes, I grew up with that. I grew up in a family, you know, with a very strong foundation of faith. And I've leaned on that. Whether I've known it or not, I've always been leaning on that. As Jake began to grow, how did you let him go enough (laughs) to be able to climb a tree, run down the street, you know? Or were you always like, ah, slow down, your heart. How do you do it? Well, Jake would say you coddled me more than you should have, but I think they always say that. I'm sure there were moments I coddled him or, you know, was overly cautious. He also has an immune deficiency in addition to his heart defects, so he was sick all the time. So we're in and out of doctor's offices and the ER frequently. He didn't have the physical stamina in sports and things like that. But I, I, another shout out to my husband, I have to say he would push me and challenge me overtly sometimes. I remember when Jake was like 12 and they went up to the big baseball diamond and he had a coach that wouldn't play him because he couldn't make it around the bases very quickly. And I was devastated by it. And I remember Bill saying, don't you let him get one whiff of that from you. And he was right. So, you know, I tried very hard not to make my pain and worry his pain and worry and to let him have a life. Let's talk a little bit about how Matthew handled a little brother who he knew had some heart issues. Was he a good brother to this little guy? Fabulous brother. Such a kind soul. I remember just sort of finding him every once in a while, just sort of staring at Jake. He knew to be gentle, but he's also just kind of a gentle kid anyway. But yeah, Jake, as I said, couldn't really play sports the way Matthew did. Matthew's a big athlete. But Jake was Matt's biggest fan. But it's mutual. And I think that Matt is Jake's biggest cheerleader, always has been. They're the best of friends. I know everybody's dying to know how Jake is doing today at 27 years old. So just give us a little portrait of, you know, what's he up to? He's doing great. He is funny and kind and has a great group of friends and is working really, really hard as a brewer. He brews beer. When I told his cardiologist where he's working, she was like, what? He brews beer he for brews a living. beer for a living and working at one of the microbreweries. And he's, he loves it and he's good at it. And yeah, he's really having fun. Well, congratulations. That's such good news. Your husband wrote, this illness shaped our family, but it also shaped Diane's career. You have worked tirelessly for what you call heart families. 
Let's talk a little bit about that career. Did it start with Sisters for Heart? Tell me how this whole thing began. No, my career has been eclectic, I like to say. It has not been a linear path. So right out of college, I was actually doing public health prevention education. Did that for a couple of years and then had Jake and couldn't work for a couple of years at all because he was too sick to put in daycare. And then had a chance to go back to work part-time working in tobacco control. And that really led me to a career in public policy. And so I led the 2004 Smoke-Free Workplace Law campaign here in Massachusetts. Let's stop for a little applause for that. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I worked with an amazing group of people. And I just, I directed it, but I certainly didn't do all the work on that. And from there, I went to work for a consulting firm where I did policy advocacy for many, many years and loved it for a bunch of different nonprofits. And then a couple years ago, made a big shift to go into research on kind of the operations end. But all that time, I was volunteering actively in the space. And so some of that work was, you know, volunteering to provide support and education for families of single ventricle patients. Some of it was some research that was happening in single ventricle. But about a year and a half ago, I had the chance to go to work for Additional Ventures. And Additional Ventures is a nonprofit research foundation that is focused on finding curative solutions for single ventricle heart disease purely. So a cure. And I was asked to be the program director of a research initiative called Project Singular. And our goal is to do whole genome sequencing of at least 5,000 single ventricle patients, which is a lot for this rare disease, and their family members, and to make that data available free of charge to all researchers. I've seen some incredible statistics here that I got from Project Singular. Five of every 100,000 babies is born with a single ventricle heart defect. Four genes have been linked to single ventricle heart defects, and right now there is no cure for single ventricle heart defects. I'm going to guess the goal is to find the cure. Absolutely. If we can understand the genetic causes, and we do believe there are genetic causes, if we can understand what causes it, we can then do, I think, two things. One would be to be able to say, here are the patients who are more likely to have some of these complications, and we can intervene sooner. But we'd also be able to develop better treatments, new treatments, and hopefully cures. That is definitely the goal. Talk to me a little bit about Sisters for Heart. Yeah, so Sisters by Heart is an organization that I've been on the board of for many years. Really proud of the work that the organization is doing. It started out for just parents of hypoplastic left heart syndrome babies. It's now all single ventricle patients and families. So we're really working to provide support all throughout the lifespan. American Heart Association, you are a lady in red. (laughs) I was. I can't say I still am, but I I was. I've been involved as a volunteer advocate for many, many years. The AHA, I believe so strongly in all the work that they do. And I even worked for them for a little bit of time. But yeah, really, really happy to be engaged with them. You also sit on the board of directors of the American Board of Pediatrics. You are the only non-physician on that board. Well, one of two. It was a great opportunity to work with physicians really around how to improve the field of pediatric medicine. What is it like for you to do your job on a daily basis? So we're getting ready to launch Project Singular. We'll launch in a couple months. So it's really been about doing outreach to patients, patient organizations, clinicians, and really working to build out a recruitment strategy because, you know, our goal is really to get people to the website where they can consent and enroll but we have to get them to the website. They have to know about it. So, you know, some of my job is meetings and conversations, and some of it is speaking engagements. 
I also, in, in my volunteer work, I certainly also speak as the mom of a 27-year-old with single ventricle. I've been in really involved in not just initiatives to improve physical health and functioning, but also neurodevelopment. These kids tend to have neurocognitive developmental delays, learning disabilities, and also mental health and resilience because mm. the emotional impacts of the disease are obviously tremendous. What is it about this work? Diane, that keeps you getting up every morning and staying inspired? Yeah. I don't know that it was anything on a conscious level that I intentionally chose, but I definitely know that throughout Jake's lifespan, I needed this to mean something more than just the grief of it. I needed to turn it into something positive. I needed to try to improve life for the families and patients that come after Jake, make the course easier than the road we walked, which was not easy. Free open heart surgery is chronic illness, living with that fear every single day, learning disabilities, financial impacts. It's been really, really hard. And I have always felt that anything I can do to make that path easier for someone else, I'm going to do it. Our childhood shapes and it molds us. It's your turn now. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you come from, and what life was like in your house. Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey. You know what they say. Oh, you're a Jersey girl. Yeah, you can take the girl out of Jersey, but you can never take the Jersey out of the girl. So I grew up in New Jersey. I'm one of four siblings. I was the middle girl. My dad was a lawyer. My mom a teacher. Amazing parents. Hardworking, loving, kind people. We really were raised with, I think, an incredibly strong work ethic, family, faith, taking care of one another, all really, really important. Pretty type A, I'm not going to lie, but yeah, very, very kind, loving family. When you were growing up, who was your role model? My parents really were. My dad was just this incredibly hardworking man who put himself through college and an MBA and then law school. My mom was a teacher, supported the family while he was doing all of that. And I think that I looked up tremendously to both of them very, very much. Well, you mentioned college, putting himself through college. Tell us a little bit about your college experience. I know you went to Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm a Boston College girl. I still love you. It's okay. We'll still find a way to get along, Candy. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Holy Cross where I met Bill, and I majored in psychology. But I think I always had this desire to help people. It was sort of that was, and psych was intriguing to me because of that. I loved it, but we got married like right after graduation and then had the kids pretty young. How did motherhood change you? Let's go back to when Matthew was born. Oh, motherhood changed everything for me. I always wanted to be a mom. I knew that. Being Matt's mom certainly changed everything in my life. I remember someone saying to me, you're never again going to come first. And I was like, yeah, you're right. That's the way it is. But I think the biggest change for me was having a special needs child. And I think that you put one foot in front of the other and you fight like hell and you just keep fighting. And it's all about your kids, all of it. Do you think that because Jake was your second child, you were better able to take that on? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know is my honest answer to that. I thought a lot about that. I'm grateful he was the second because I'm not sure we would have been able emotionally or otherwise to go on to have a second. So I'm glad that it happened the way it happened in the order it happened. What do you say to a parent, a mom, a dad who is listening to this program right now and they have an unborn child whom they know has an abnormality of some kind? Any words of wisdom? 
that you could pass along to them? Oh, I bet yeah. you do this all day long at the well, job I, you have right now. I don't pretend to be wise, but I would say know that there is a great deal of hope. There's great reason to be hopeful. We know more and we're learning more all the time. These kids are incredibly resilient and amazing. You're stronger than you think you are. And reach out for help because there's a whole lot of help and support. What do you wish you knew, Diane, when you first heard those words, your baby has hypoplastic left heart syndrome? Take us right back to that moment and look at it in the rearview mirror. What do you wish you knew? Oh, I wish I had understood that I was strong. I don't think I understood that. You know, I was the middle girl, as I said. So I sort of grew up thinking I wasn't the smartest and I wasn't the most talented. And I didn't really have a whole lot of confidence. And so I don't think I really knew I was strong. And I would also... I mean, gosh, hindsight's twenty twenty. If someone could have said, yeah, like, this is going to break your family in many, many ways, but you're going to survive and you are going to be resilient. Lean into hope. And I think if someone had said those words, even just hearing there's hope, there weren't older kids we could look to. There weren't good outcomes we could look to. It was a really dark time. Last three questions. We ask everyone who sits where you are today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I work. You know, I grew up with this incredibly strong work ethic from our parents, and I think that was really instilled in us, and I'm a really hard worker. And so I think when there's an obstacle in my path, I don't take no. Like, I I just keep pushing through it. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a solution, and I keep trying. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received in your life? And I always tell people it can be personal. It can be professional. Yeah. So my very wise dad on his 70th birthday gave his children and grandchildren a list of 10 guidelines for life. They are brilliant. Really, they were how he lived his life, but they've been a roadmap for us. And they're all amazing. I think my favorite is number 10, which is share your gifts, be heard, give back. Wow. Yeah. What an honor to have a dad like that. Total and complete honor. He's an amazing man. At this moment, in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you, Diane Pickles? My mantra, if you will, is work hard and be kind. And I think that that's what I try to do each and every day. And success to me is leaving the world better than you found it. And that to me is success. If you can work hard and be kind and leave it a little better, you're successful. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story today on the story behind her success. Diane Pickles. Thank you so much, Candy. It's been a pleasure. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to William Pickles for his suggestion that I interview his lovely wife, Diane. Great suggestion, William, and I'm so glad I did. What a story. Find out more about her nonprofit at additionalventures.org. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, will you please let me know? Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and your family about the show. Leave a review if you would be so kind. I will have a new inspiring story for you next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap toward success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.